Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as Vancouver considers bringing back school liaison officers, why is BC's Human Rights Commissioner wanting police out of schools? Plus, how do you fix the mess at BC Housing? We look at the lack of accountability at the Crown Corporation. And forget Home Alone, Die Hard, and Elf. Rick Forchuk joins us to discuss the best new Christmas movies in 2022. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's talk about Vancouver School Liaison Officer Program. BC's Human Rights Commissioner is calling for an end to the School Liaison Officer Program across the province in a letter to the BC School Trustees Association. Uh, Commissioner Kasari Govender recommends that the programs be ended by all school districts unless they can demonstrate an evidence-based need for them that can't be met some other way. Now, the letter comes as the Vancouver School Board is set to vote today on a motion that would reinstate a revised and reimagined version of the program in public schools after it was ended last year. Now, Cassie Govender spoke to our Jill Bennett uh, earlier today, and she says that Indigenous, Black, and other marginalized students, as well as their parents and communities, have raised significant concerns about the harm caused by having police in schools. Take a listen. You know, we do have some compelling evidence that these programs cause harm. Uh, What we do have is some important studies from the U.S. showing the harm of these programs, that they have the opposite of of what of their intended effect on on black youth, on indigenous youth, on other racialized youth by making them feel less safe in their schools. Uh, We also have really good evidence here in B.C. that certain policing practices have a really disproportionate impact on racialized communities. So if you know that your family is much more likely to be subject to police scrutiny, much more likely to be criminalized, then you have a different relationship with police. And we need to take all these things into account when we're making these decisions. That is Kasari Govender uh, with the BC Human Rights Commission. Now, the school liaison program was first implemented in 1972 in Vancouver, and it typically places uniformed police officers in in high schools. Uh, Officers can deliver safety and crime prevention lessons, uh, coach teams, counsel students, escort field trips, and even serve as in-school law enforcement. Uh, As Ms. Govender said, critics say the program reinforces systemic racism and does nothing to improve safety in schools. Now, Ali Chaudhary is an East Vancouver resident who works with youth at risk. He is supportive of the school liaison program. In fact, he uh, set up and created a petition to save the program uh, in Vancouver just last year. He joins us now. Ali, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, of course, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, your thoughts on this release today by BC's Human Rights Commissioner, basically calling for the end of the school liaison officer program. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, as, as someone in that position, I do think it's improper to try to influence this motion. Um, you know, unfortunately, as someone who's on the ground, who works with a lot of youth within our community, I see how uh, you know beneficial the program can be. To have someone in that position come out and say that um, someone that's supposed to be representing myself and many other members of the community, it's, uh, it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. So you think that uh, Ms. Govender's um, uh, open letter to the School Trustee Association is politics. 
Definitely, yeah. You know, I think there's this kind of notion that, you know, the school liaison officer program is uh, intertwines with the police force. And, you know, I think it's important to differentiate the two. If you have something against the police, um, I think the school liaison officer program is a great opportunity to help build that relationship and learn more. Uh, the specific argument that Ms. Govinder and others have made is that it reinforces systemic racism uh, and it doesn't actually improve safety in schools. It makes it uh, at times difficult um, for certain uh, parts of the school population, some of the uh, kids in school. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, anytime someone brings up the fact about safety, I, 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 you know, I understand that they don't know the program as well because the program plays safety plays such a small role in the program you know it's obviously an element but those building relationships um, between the youth and you know the police community seeing a police officer in a you know positive image having them coach teams creating events being a part of clubs and most importantly being another resource for students and being in here for them to come into uh, you know liaison's office and uh have a chat with anything that they need to talk about. So when they mention that safety doesn't play such a big role, that's such a small part. Um, and you know what, uh, from hearing from many stories from many students within the community, I know they do have a, they do have a role in playing for safety as well. Uh, what's your background and your experience with school liaison officers? Yeah, I went to school in East Vancouver, and um, I was uh, caught up in many situations that involve deadly weapons and stuff. And to have someone who has experience with the law and has connections with the police force there right in my school who's a familiar face helped me process uh, a lot of the things that i had to go through and you know most importantly the counselors are so overwhelmed with so many students so just being able to have that door open and um, be offered so many programs such as the vpd student challenge through the liaison and then having that familiar face at those programs was such a was such a big thing for us at the school Mm-hmm. So were you involved with gangs growing up in school? No, I never got fully into gangs, but I was right around the people who were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all about feeling a part of, for many of these students, being a part of a community. And um, and that's what people, a lot of these youth are looking for. So to have that school is also come and have that door open. It's just another community to be a part of with the SLO, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, another great resource to have. When the when the school liaison program was gone in Vancouver, I mean, did, how did that impact you? I mean, you're obviously out of school now, but how did that impact you? Well, you know what, I work with you that risk myself, and and you know, you have a that not having that SLO presence there anymore does affect um, things in terms of crime as well. For example, at uh, Templeton Secondary, I know there was a lot more students coming from Britannia and stuff. From what I hear from the students. And um, so it's, it, you know, it doesn't affect me as much, but it does affect some of the work that I do with the youth and um, and being in the community and hearing from parents and stuff. And um, so, yeah, that, that that's a big part for me is it affects the students that I work with. Do you think there can be changes made to the, the, the program itself? Uh, I don't know if officers still will wear uniforms while they're in the school there, but are there ways to reimagine uh, that position well, it still may be police, but completely different so that perhaps those that feel, you know, may not feel safe around having an officer, uh, that it can be re- reimagined. Because at this point, they say it is at times difficult for indig- Indigenous and Black and racialized students 
uh, LGBTQ students, um, can it be reimagined, the program? Absolutely. And you know what, that's what I was telling the school board trustees as well, is that we need to move forward and we need to work together. Um, so, you know, if there are concerns, whether that be uniformed or having armed officers, we need to work together. And this is kind of what we were trying to do the last time this discussion was up, was saying that rather than completely eliminate a program that helps the majority of the students, why don't we work together to figure out what can we do to um, solve these issues? And um, that's what the uh, a lot of the school board trustees are planning to do is they put forward a motion that says they want to reimagine school as an officer program, which you know involves getting engagement from the community and stuff, and seeing what we could do to uh, hopefully work for work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think uh, the uh, human rights commissioner is coming from the right place, wanting police out, or do you think this is just completely political in your mind, and and uh, you know you're just not happy with it? You know, I think it's important for the, I don't know how involved the Human Rights Commissioner is within the program itself. I think she might see it from a lens of just policing. And to truly get a perspective of the program, you need to come down here and you need to put yourself in the shoes of an SLO officer and and see how that interaction happens with the kids. For example, we had um, a teacher or an administrator speak from um, Killarney Secondary, and we had 79, uh, out of 79 teachers and and admin, we had about 72 or 73 staff say that they supported the program. And those are people that are directly involved with the, you know, the students and the youth. So to have someone come um, who may not have the best knowledge of what the program does, but just have the general knowledge of the police, um, I think it's, uh, again, inappropriate and improper for her to try to influence the motion. Mm-hmm. Well, Ali, uh, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to chatting with you again on this issue. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jess. Hey, welcome back to the show. I think the Days of Our Lives theme song is an appropriate mood music. I asked Ryan if he would play it. We decided over the over the news break. I think it's appropriate because it really does represent, in uh, many ways, the longest-running political soap opera here in Metro Vancouver. Of course, that's a Surrey policing debate. A few hours ago, the Surrey Now leader reported that Surrey City Council will consider a corporate report tonight from Surrey's general manager of finance, indicating that while the city's financial position is stable at the end of the third quarter of 2022, a significant shortfall of $20 million for policing operations is forecast. Now, this comes as a report from city staff in Surrey says a plan to stick with the RCMP as its police force instead of the fledgling Surrey Police Service could be approved by the province by January with a ramp down of SPS beginning in March of 2023. The report, the second created this November over the issue that defined the municipal election, will be presented to Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke and Council this evening uh, as a part of the city's city council's meeting agenda. Now, there's a lot being said at the, of course, civic level, but all of this eventually does end up uh, at the provincial government level, in most cases with the Solicitor General. So what does he have to do? What is his thinking? What kind of things, what kind of issues does he have to take into consideration beyond just the political discourse at the civic level? Well, joining me now is an individual who knows a thing or two about uh, working at the provincial level, Wally Opel. He's a former uh, BC Court of Appeal judge and a former Attorney General of BC. Wally, thank you for joining us. 
Always good to be with you. Uh, I, well, I, I felt a bit odd playing the Days of Our Lives with an esteemed guest like yourself, but I couldn't resist <laughs> because it has been the longest-running soap opera, I tell you. Um, first of all, you know, we, we, we understand this report's coming to Surrey City Hall. There will be recommendations, and uh, there was uh, certainly a position that Brenda Locke took during the election campaign is that she wants to keep the RCMP. This report, of course, will go to this, uh, the province as well. What kind of things... Is Mike Farnworth, and broadly speaking, the provincial government and cabinet going to be looking at? Well, cities have the uh, option or the right to determine the type of policing they want. And I have no doubt that Mike Farnworth will be respectful of uh, Surrey's opinions. But, But the minister has a larger responsibility. He cannot consider Surrey in isolation. Uh, Surrey's only part of the equation of the overall policing strategy for the province. So I don't know what he's going to do, but I would think that what he would do, would he would he would consider the human element involved here, and by that I mean the 300 or so officers that have already signed on at the invitation of Surrey. Remember, Surrey recruited police officers from across Canada, and so a number of them have uprooted their families and have come to Surrey and uh, they're establishing themselves in the community. So you can't ignore that part of the equation. There's a lot of money that's already been spent by families and by Surrey in recruiting those people in uh, in coming here. The other thing, uh, as I said a moment ago, is how does the Surrey uh, Police Department fit in with the overall policing strategy of the province? Because... The province has already indicated that they're going to get into regional policing. This is something we recommended back in 1994, and commissions have recommended that since then. The province is going to be divided up into three areas, the the interior, the lower mainland, and Vancouver Island. So you have to think, the government will have to think about the overall strategy of where this type of police force would fit in with that. See, the other thing is that that uh, contract policing is really a concept of the past. By that contract policing, I mean that the, the many cities enter into a contract with the federal government and with the provincial government to offer them a police force. That type of policing really is going out of style and out of vogue because right now you need a decentralized type of policing a community-based policing where there are police boards, police committees that are cognizant of police of local priorities. So those are things that he'll have to think about. How does a, um, a local police force uh, with a police board, a governing body, fit in with that plan? Does he I care? Would that, that would be a priority. Does, so, he so, care, does he care that Brenda Locke ran on reinstating the RCMP? Is that, is the, and if the Surrey can eat those costs, because some of those costs are going to be uh, wasted. I mean, I think uh, Mr. Lipinski, head of the uh, Surrey Police Service, has said the severance alone is $60 million if you had to buy everybody out. Mind you, I don't think they will, but even if you had to. It, does Brenda Locke's position in, in, in this play a role in Mike Farnworth and the go- provincial government's decision-making? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that he will be respectful of what city council wants, but he has an overall responsibility from the provincial perspective, as I said, you can't look at Surrey in isolation. Uh, Surrey is only part of the equation. 
So he's going to have to think about that. He has a much larger responsibility of uh, policing in the province. And I've already mentioned some of the things about community-based policing. Police boards, the RCMP doesn't have police boards. The RCMP uh, selects a police chief for you. Uh, Does the province still want that? Uh, Does the province uh, have a responsibility to determine what local cities want and local committees and local police boards? Shouldn't the provincial things that are uh, relevant in considering a community-based policing type of philosophy? Those are things that they're going to have to consider. Wally, do you think that shouldn't the provincial government be driving this then rather than worrying about one civic politician or another civic politician. I mean, this is all done backwards. If we want a Metro Vancouver police force and a Vancouver Island one and one, one for the rest of BC, it's the provincial government that should be driving this rather than, you know, Brenda Locke or Doug McCallum. Isn't this part of the problem? Well, I, I don't think that's a part of the problem. I think they have a right to, to uh, determine the type of police force they want, but they cannot do it in isolation. You know, the days of of going your own way are gone because, you know, the people who break our laws don't, uh, they don't respect municipal boundaries. So you need an overall policing strategy, regional policing. We learned when we were doing the Picton inquiry how important it is to share information, to have a larger responsibility, a larger focus to determine from a provincial perspective what type of policing is best for the province. And the city of Surrey's uh, wish is only one small factor to consider. Wally, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Always good to be with you, Jess. Premier David Eby uh, revealed last week that the province ordered a forensic audit of BC Housing in July when Eby was the Minister of Housing, an investigation that was never made known uh, to the public. The forensic audit was the result of an independent critical report on BC Housing that found problems at the Crown Corporation, including inadequate oversight over decisions and spending and unclear rules and responsibilities, uh, potentially impacting BC Housing ability to manage risks. Now, ultimately, Mr. Eby Uh, fired BC Housing's entire board. Now, following Mr. Eby's revelation during question period last week that an audit has been underway for months, the province released the terms of reference. The Ministry of Finance's Controller General has ordered uh, Ernst & Young, the company that wrote the original report, to handle the audit uh, as well. Well, Our next guest also has many questions in regards to how BC Housing has run. Dr. Julian Summers, a professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at SFU. We certainly view him as an expert on homelessness, mental health and addiction on this show. He has been a guest on this show and on many others at CKNW, and I find him to be in tremendous help uh, when trying to navigate uh, through various topics and issues in and around housing and homelessness as well. Uh, Dr. Summers, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure, Jazz. Thanks for your very kind intro. Well, uh, you have lots of experience uh, in dealing with a lot of these issues, as I said. Let's start first with just a sort of, I guess, a high-level question. Does this audit surprise you at all? Uh, No, it's been uh, an awfully long time coming. Um, BC Housing's performance has been known, and and I don't mean among insiders, it has been known publicly through published results to be markedly inferior to um, approaches that cost about the same amount of money and that are feasible to implement, and they're feasible to implement because they have been implemented and compared against uh, the status quo here. Um, And yet uh, they've uh, continued on 
very much the same path. They've been completely unfazed by the development of new evidence of superior practices. And over time, they've become they've escalated their defensiveness um, against any calls to change. So um, in, the, in the context of that culture, combined with markedly increased budgeting and a flow through that uh, can be seen to have limited safeguards, um, it's really not surprising at all. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your specific experience. I mean, you deal with mental health and addiction, uh, ha- uh, housing and homelessness. Uh, what experiences specifically have you, ha- have you had with uh, with BC Housing? Well, uh, quite <laughs> surprisingly limited given what we've done. Over the last 20 years, I've worked with... Um, uh, mostly with uh, provincial uh, data sets spanning multiple ministries. It was launched under an effort about 20 years ago mm-hmm. to try to figure out how to respond to so-called prolific offenders. And this it became quickly apparent were people who are experiencing homelessness, addictions, mental illnesses, and for prolonged periods of time. So really need something extraordinary and something that combines resources across a number of sectors in order to uh, experience a, a new path. So that work has been going on. We've produced a number of uh, a body of research showing where are people who um, are the highest concentrations of people who are in this kind of syndrome. And then of all the programs that have been launched that include BC housing, so specialized courts, outreach teams, uh, intensive case management services, housing first. So things that the province has participated in, we've used these data to evaluate how they've performed and how they've helped people. And in many cases, they've resulted in marked changes in how people benefit. Um, as I said, that research has been not only um, ignored by BC Housing, but in a recent City Hall rezoning application, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but it called it, 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 it elicited thousands of respondents to Vancouver City Hall who were opposing a development that was being jointly sponsored by Minister Eby and by BC Housing, it prompted the then CEO of BC Housing to make his first ever in-person petition to a city hall rezoning application. And he came and essentially accused me and other people who were speaking critically of their plans as NIMBYs who are ignorant. So if anything, over the years, that organization has doubled down in its opposition to get with the times. And was that the development at Arbutus in 7th? It was. Yeah. It was. Um, now, there, is this the same study that, that you did on homelessness? The total research cost was about $120 million? Yeah, so that's, believe it or not, that's one of the studies that um, has been done using this combination of multi-ministry data. It's unique in the world to have uh, coverage of an entire population as we do in BC, spanning uh, social development, so so income assistance, including housing, um, all health services, as well as all justice-related services involving, involving corrections and courts. So we're the only we're, we're the only entity in Canada that has this, and we've been using these data um, now for over 20 years, including in randomized controlled trials. And that's the study that cost that that a st- that very large figure. Listeners should rest assured that 90% of the dollars went to uh, the services that um, were intended to benefit people, not to research costs. But we learned from this in the clearest possible ways 
what is the magnitude of the difference between the status quo, so what's currently being on offer, not only from BC Housing, but health authorities and other services, um, in comparison to what, what, we, what we believe as experts in the area to be the, 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 the most advanced form of practice. And by the way, it costs about the same as the status quo. So we have this head-to-head. We have these head-to-head results, and the the differences are stark. And when you presented this report, what happened? Well, over about an eighteen-month period, we at SFU worked with a number of agencies around the province to talk about scaling it up and taking it from a research uh, uh, domain into implementation, much like you would with, say, a COVID vaccine. You, you do a randomized trial to establish its effectiveness. Once you found that it's effective, you move into mobilization. So we worked over about 18 months to, to discuss what it would be, what it would look like to mobilize this. It needs to be done in multiple parts of the province. So we, 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 we earmarked four regions of the province. Um, assured the province that we had the necessary human resources, and we committed to using the same interministry database to ensure that we were hitting the same benchmarks in terms of reductions in crime, reductions in hospitalizations, uh, people returning to work, um, all those kinds of things that we had already published. And the response we got one week later was, please immediately destroy the database. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, well, the reasoning in the letter is uh, unpersuasive. Uh, what the main point was, you can get you can get these data through other sources, which um, over a year later remains uh, remains false. It's not possible. It's it's simply not possible to do that. The the truer answer came through a phone call um, at the request of one of the deputies that I presented to who said that my remarks had angered people in the room by implying that the government had mishandled homelessness, addiction, and mental illness. And, uh, quote, the, my remarks were, were uh, got me into trouble. So that's, uh, I think, a clear insight into the motivations of the government and their, and, and their behavior. You, you don't send a, a letter ordering the immediate destruction of a 20-year-long research project on a Friday afternoon if it reflects a well-reasoned plan, and this certainly did not. And roughly what, what time was this? What, what, what month, what year? Uh, it was last year in, uh, in March, last year in March, end of the fiscal year. I'm a bit gobsmacked here. You, 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 you are viewed as an expert on mental health addiction, uh, significant research that you've done and continue to do. And government tells you to destroy a database that is there and your research shows that how you can help and they're asking you to destroy that research? Well, I've learned since that at the same time I was making that presentation, the minister had already committed to the development permit that that wound up getting me and a number of other people before a city council in Vancouver. And that development permit involves um, a, a project that is the antithesis of what our evidence showed worked the best. It was a building um, with a secure entryway with a consumption site inside uh, designed for people with addictions to live in SRO-type buildings where they uh, could not be reconnected with their kids or with family members, no supports on site for uh, mental illness or for things 
that are vital to community integration, like finding and keeping jobs and that kind of thing. So um, the group I was presenting to already knew that this was the direction government was going in. And the data that I'm that I was referring to were probably the best means of showing that what they were planning is going to result in huge waste. Uh, Dr. Summers, in regards to this specific incident that uh, you, you've been talking about, uh, what needs to happen in your mind moving forward so people like you can continue to do the work that you do, the good work that you do, uh, and so we can actually fix BC housing? I I'm, Personally, I, I believe we need a new provincial government um, because the the issues that are intertwined and that oppose implementing evidence, what, what I'll simply refer to as effective uh, solutions that, to the best of our known uh, ability, um, are um, also overlapping with uh, a, 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 an agenda to introduce interventions, particularly a public supply of addictive drugs. And so the, the main elements that this government is, is pursuing um, that are targeted at the patient population that we've worked with most closely are decriminalizing possession for the purposes of personal consumption and providing a publicly funded source of addictive drugs to people in BC. And those two practices are uh, pretty easily seen as um, not only ineffective, but highly, highly dangerous. And um, it simply so happens that there are parties in BC who have financial and personal interests in the success of these interventions. But let me emphasize that it that the idea of um, providing addictive drugs to people who are chronically homeless, most of whom are experiencing serious mental illnesses, and that that is the best we can do is crazy. Um, it, 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 when we've offered people choices, they take us up on, on, on the options that we present to them. Those, they, they take us up on choices of housing. They take us up on help reconnecting with um, family members that they've been estranged from, relocating into communities. Almost everyone chooses a home outside of the downtown east side or the places where we meet them. And those interventions have been shown to result in transformative effects in people's lives, and no one is left asking us, gee, can you also please provide us with a free supply of drugs? The vast majority are trying to overcome their addictions, but this government is committed to leaving all of the causes of addiction in place, in fact, denying that they even exist, mm. and instead layering on top a supply of addictive drugs that is going to deepen our catastrophe. Uh, in regards to the BC housing itself, and I know you don't deal with them directly, and you've said that, which is it just too big and too bureaucratic? at this point or do you think it's, it's just a, it's a change in government and change of executives and a brand new mindset that's required there the the people that so yeah they their background is in uh, um, uh, services like providing housing for uh, families with low incomes providing housing for seniors and those both happen to be groups of in the population who in many cases enjoy living with others with, in, with similar experiences but when it comes to serious mental illnesses and addictions, that is not what people choose. No one chooses housing with exclusively other folks 
who've been homeless and who experience mental illnesses and addictions. When given choices, Mm -hmm. people overwhelmingly select the same sort of mix of housing that you or I might choose or listeners might choose. Diversity, they choose a mix and and they choose location based on factors that may not even occur to them. The, the, the store nearby reminds them of something or the park nearby. And that's the experience that, that, that we've had. BC Housing is rigidly adhering to this congregate model where everyone must live together. Um, it just so happens this is the model run by many of the um, people closest to BC Housing, including the wife of the former C- CEO. But in head-to-head comparisons, when we look at the outcomes of people who are randomly assigned to housing in a congregate building versus housing that they get to choose and that's scattered, by the way, these two things cost the same, the results are markedly different. Only the scattered housing results in substantial reductions in medical emergency and crime, while those who are living in the congregate housing have no difference compared to people who remain homeless on those measures. And the answer is the culture of the building. We rise to the level of the standard that surrounds us the, and, and, and where our aspirations are. And if we house people all together in, in buildings with others who share similar histories, the culture of the building becomes the culture of the street. Dr. Summers, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jess. Thank you. About what? That we didn't do something. We took care of everything. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? I forgot to close the garage, that's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! You're listening to The Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to The Jazz Joe Hall Show. Christmas is traditionally all about tradition. Decorate the tree, spend time with the family, and watch the same movies year after year, like Die Hard or Home Alone, like we just heard, and Elf. So this year, we say let's buck tradition. Surely there must be some new movies to watch this year. We asked Rick Forchuk to give us a rundown of the movies you can catch at the box, office, stream, or watch on broadcast television for Christmas 2022. Rick Forchuk, as as you all know, is a movie blogger, and you can find his uh, work at rickspicks.ca. Rick, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Jazz. Well, you know, when people think uh, uh, Christmas, obviously, you've got the classics like um, uh, Home Alone, uh, Die Hard, Elf, The Grinch. There's lots, obviously, to watch from the past, but uh, I uh, I know you've got some great suggestions for what we can expect. And so let's um, maybe break this up into uh, movies first, and then we'll we'll talk about streaming and, and broadcast TV after that. Um, first of all, before we begin, I mean, are you an avid movie watcher during Christmas time? I am. I'm an avid, avid movie watcher <laughs> all the time. Uh, but the Christmas season uh, typically uh, is interesting for two reasons at the movie business. Number one is because people have more time. Uh, there are some blockbuster movies that are released. And number two, and uh, equally important, I think, is the fact that um, with, with the the time that exists, uh, there's all these Oscar stuff. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, there'll be Oscar movies, what they call in the business Oscar bait, uh, that will be released with little fanfare. So the closer we get to Christmas Day and actually uh, the end of the, the year, the more likely you are to look at your listings at the theaters that you go to and say, hey, there's a movie I've never heard of. Well, it's that's because it's a movie that needs to play in a certain number of uh, 
screens in order to be considered for an Oscar the following year. So we'll see two of those things. We'll see uh, both Oscar consideration and we'll see the big movies. But uh, I'd like to concentrate for purposes of this discussion on the, the big movies opening up between now and Christmas. And there are some real big blockbusters, Chaz. Yeah, I guess we, let's start with probably the biggest, the Avatar. That's coming out uh, in just over two weeks. Yeah, December 16th, it gets released. Avatar, The Way of Water, and it's long anticipated. Uh, the original was in 2009. Uh, producer, director, writer James Cameron thought it might take him three more years to have a sequel. Well, it's uh, three more years and then three more years and then three more years. Uh, he is doing a series of these, five movies altogether. The budget for the movies, all told, is over a billion dollars. So they will have to bring in just a pile of money at the box office to make all of that back. This Avatar film picks up where the last one left off. This is a sequel. So we are on the moon of uh, the uh, planet, um, the, the planet that circulates in the, in the, um, oh, the Alpha Centauri system. That's what it is. Pandora is the name of the moon. It circulates in the Alpha Centauri system. And this film has a lot more to do with indigenous people and the way they're treated than the first one did. And the first one had that theme as well. So this one, the expectation is it will be spectacular. Now, I've seen only previews, the same as everybody else, and uh, I've done a lot of reading about it. But James Cameron is a genius, and uh, Avatar, I would say, will be the biggest of the big movies, not only for the Christmas season, but it'll fall over into January. It's going to be in theaters for weeks and weeks and weeks bringing people in, because I think, Jazz, the word of mouth on this is going to be just great. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a big movie, Jazz. And uh, you have another one that you had sent to me, uh, Puss in Boots. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, December 21st. It's released, and this is a great family film. Kids will love this, but you know what? Adults love the Puss in Boots franchise as well. This one's subtitled The Last Wish. It's the third film in the series. It started in 09 with Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek. It is great family fun. And what's uh, the, the story here this time is that we have Puss learning that he has used up eight of his nine lives. Now he has to be very, very careful as he figures out some way to get his lives replenished. And there is a way, there's a process to do that, but he needs a lot of help. So this is a road picture. It's a story of Puss in Boots uh, looking for that last wish, looking to get his lives reinstated so he can go on to make more movies. Um, kids will love it. Great family film. That's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, December 21st. Okay. Uh, and one of the other ones you had mentioned uh, to me was uh, a movie coming out looking at the life of um, uh, Whitney Houston. Yeah, it's called I Want to Dance with Somebody. And this is a very ambitious biopic. Um, this one uh, has Naomi Ackle. I'd never heard of her before, but seeing her in the trailer is just amazing. She takes on the challenge uh, of being Whitney Houston. Uh, Houston, of course, passed away in 2012 amidst a lot of controversy and many of the things that have happened since that time that, that have been written, interviews that have been done, uh, paint a more sympathetic picture toward, uh, of her. You know, she had drug problems. She had all kinds of uh, anxiety and stress and depression problems. And we lost her far, far too soon. But this picture has all of the hallmarks of being a really outstanding biopic. So looking forward to that. That's December 23rd. I want to dance with somebody. The story of Whitney Houston Jazz. Uh, now, this next one, which you had mentioned to me, I don't think has a Christmas theme, uh, but certainly is opening on Christmas Day, uh, a movie from Tom Hanks. I, I believe it's called A Man Called Otto. What is that about? Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is a remake of a Swedish film, which in 2016 became the top 
money earner for any foreign film at the U.S. box office. So it's been remade in English. Tom Hanks is the title character. Uh, he's just a grumpy old man. Uh, he's in his 60s. He's recently lost the love of his wife, uh, his wife, and he also lost his job of 40 years. So here he is in the neighborhood um, just being grouchy. Uh, you know, he uh, kicks at the cats. He swears at the dogs. He uh, hates it when the kids walk around on his lawn. And what changes everything is when a family moves in next door, they're different. And uh, somehow, some way, they find their way into Otto's life. That Otto finds his way into theirs. So this is one of those really heartwarming stories, which has a hard edge to it. And it's hard to imagine Tom Hanks getting involved with anything that isn't first class. He's a great actor. He's a great director. Uh, he's one of the producers of this picture. His company, Playtone Records, co-produced it. So that's A Man Called Auto. Watch for that on Christmas Day. It'll be a big opening on Christmas Day, Jazz. If you're uh, just joining us, we're speaking to Rick Forchuk, who's uh, giving us a rundown on what you can watch when it comes to Christmas movies this holiday season, beyond, of course, the Die Hards, Elf, and Home Alone. Those are all classics, uh, as we know. Now, Rick, uh, one of the things that, have, that has changed in regards to our viewing over the many years, of course, has been what's available on the streaming uh, services. There are many more streaming services as well. Do you see anything um, this year that uh, we should keep an eye on in regards to uh, movies uh, during the holiday season? Yeah, and for a variety of reasons, Jazz. I'll start with the Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Hmm. Now, we saw a version of Pinocchio about two months ago on uh, streaming services. Uh, this is yet another one, but, but, there's a big but here, it's an animated version, but it is way darker than the Disney film. So this is a bit of a um, warning for parents, or a heads up at least, uh, that this version of Pinocchio takes place uh, in Italy in the 1930s during the rise of fascism and Benito Mussolini. The opening scenes in this movie have Geppetto's young son in a church, and the church is hit by a bomb, and the boy is killed. Now that's a great start for a Pinocchio movie, and it just gets darker and more horror-ridden as we go. So as long as you understand that this is a very dark depiction with horror overtones, that's fine. Uh, it'll scare younger kids, and I don't recommend it for them. Uh, it is a very interesting experience, though. It's done in stop-motion animation, and it's a really different way to look at the Pinocchio legend. So that one's on December 9th coming on Netflix. Over on Amazon Prime on the 16th, a great family film. This one is called Snow Day. And it's a musical version of the family, and a more family-friendly version, rather, than uh, the 2000 movie that spawned it. That one starred Will Ferrell, and it had uh, some edgy stuff in it. Uh, but this one, Snow Day, is just great fun, and it's exactly what it says it is. It's a snow day, the kids are around the school, and they're enjoying it so much they're trying to figure out exactly how to make two snow days in a row. And that involves the snowplow driver and a plot I won't reveal for you here. And one other one to watch for on Netflix is Glass Onion. A Knives Out Mystery. This opened in theaters here in Vancouver just this last weekend. Uh, it's already going to be on Netflix in just a couple of weeks. Daniel Craig returning in this murder mystery, which opened in three theaters. And uh, that was uh, the, the original Knives Out was just a great whodunit. This one is equally good. It's been very well reviewed. But uh, you don't have to wait very long to see this one in, uh, on uh, streaming jazz because uh, still in theaters and it'll still be in theaters when it comes to Netflix. So that's uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery Jazz. Is that sort of the the new model where Netflix streaming services will put out a movie for two or three weeks or four weeks, recoup some of their costs and then move it to their streaming service? Is that a model that uh, is going to be coming the norm eventually? Well, it's 
actually not. Hmm. It, it, uh, there are all kinds of treaties between the various purveyors of media as to when you go from theaters to streaming. And the theater owners, of course, want to have those movies in theaters longer. The streaming services want them sooner. Uh, what's different about Glass Onion is that it is a Netflix film to start with. So Netflix bought it, produced it, they own it, they can do what they choose. So they have chosen to put it in the theaters uh, and then move it very quickly to streaming services. And I'm not sure what their motivation is to do that. But to say that this is a new model, this is how it's going to go, I don't think so. There's a lot of fighting yet to be done over that, Jazz, to figure out exactly who's going to win this battle. Wow. It's interesting because uh, this has been an ongoing uh, conversation about how long they should keep some of these movies uh, uh, at the boxes, or box office uh, or just run them on streaming because if, if they just go straight to streaming, of course, that kills the entire movie industry. That's an, it is an ongoing battle, that's for sure. But let's talk about um, uh, something that we all know very well, which is traditional broadcast television. A lot of uh, shows I'm already seeing on the, on the Hallmark Network, Lifetime, those types of shows. But there's lots of shows that are obviously going to be on during the holiday season. Which ones would you recommend? Well, these are the traditional ones. And there's a heads up on this one. A Charlie Brown Christmas is probably my favorite Christmas production of all time. Uh, It just came out in 1965. It was expected by CBS that owned it at the time to be just a piece of throwaway junk. And it became a huge ratings hit. You won't see a Charlie Brown Christmas nearly as easily as you did in years past. Prior to this uh, past year, uh, it would be on seven, eight, nine, ten times between now and Christmas on all sorts of channels. Well, over the years, um, this has uh, been the way, but now not so much because Disney has bought the entire Peanuts uh, uh, franchise, and Disney has said, if you want to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas, you will watch it on Disney Plus streaming. And if you don't have a subscription to Disney Plus, you will, with one exception, not see this at all. That one exception is they have allowed PBS in the States, public broadcasting, one airing of a Charlie Brown Christmas. Other than that, you have to go to Disney Plus to see it. So, I mean, I have Disney Plus anyway, so it doesn't matter to me, but there'll be families that will say, hey, where's Charlie Brown this year? Well, you have to look harder than before, Jazz. Yeah, no kidding. Well, what other ones would you recommend here? I know there's a lot of classics out there. Which ones do you like? Yeah, I love The Wonderful Life. It's a Jimmy Stewart classic. It's from 1948. It was a box office disaster when it came out for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that uh, this was that post-war time when there was a communist behind every tree. And it was determined by uh, those critics in Congress in the U.S. that this movie, because it was about people working together to save a savings and a loan, uh, all hands on deck, really being helpful, that smacked of communism, not capitalism. And uh, the movie was... um, really poorly reviewed, and it disappeared. It wasn't until the copyright was mistakenly not renewed in the 1960s that it became a public domain. And when that happened, every station in town, every TV station in town, uh, wanted to have a crack at it, so they took it and they ran it, and that's why it is to this day a perennial hit. Uh, It's still in the public domain. Nobody owns it. So uh, It's a Wonderful Life is a great story. I didn't ever see any communists in there, uh, but I did like it, and I do like it, and it'll be on several times between now and Christmas Day, Jazz. we got about a minute left. Uh, What are your final three recommendations? Okay, well, A Christmas Story, of course, the 1983 classic. uh, That is just a fabulous, fabulous film about Ralphie, who wants a Red Ryder BB gun more than life itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is now streaming on Crave TV, A Christmas Story Christmas, and it's a sequel to that original, uh, the original Ralphie, played by Peter Billingsley, is all grown up. 
and uh, he stars in that one. So it's worth a look. And for me, I, I think maybe, other than a Charlie Brown Christmas, my favorite Christmas movie of all time is Scrooge. That's the 1951 version with Alistair Sim. My favorite. It will appear many times in the weeks before Christmas as well. And I'll watch it many times in the weeks before Christmas. So those are my picks. And uh, you know what? Everybody has uh, favorite Christmas movies. And one of the great things about the abundance of both broadcast and streaming television is you can pretty much, with the exception of a Charlie Brown Christmas, get whatever you want very easily, Jazz. Yeah, absolutely. Well, these are great recommendations. Really appreciate your time today, Rick. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Jazz. Let's talk about food banks. So rising prices and worries about a looming recession are making holiday campaigns uh, for local food banks this year especially important. It's uh, really true in cities like Surrey where demand continues to grow. The Surrey Food Bank serves 13,000 families monthly and because of the community's diversity, there is a call for a greater supply of culturally appropriate food like halal meats. Uh, halal is Arabic for permissible. Halal food is one which adheres to Islamic law as defined in the Quran. Joining me now to discuss the needs of the Surrey Food Bank is Nancy Pagani, Executive Director of the Surrey Food Bank. Nancy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jazz. It's good to be here. Uh, I know you've, this is a very busy time of the year. Give me a sense of what you're seeing and hearing uh, in regards to demand this year uh, at the Surrey Food Bank. Well, our demand is certainly up. We're up about 21% in our clients, and unfortunately... We're down about 30% in donations, so we're seeing a huge influx, obviously, in in uh, in our clients coming from various countries, especially. That's been the big shift this year in particular. Uh, when you say uh, countries, is it, it, these are just folks you have not seen as clients before, or, is it, or just greater diversity somehow this year? Uh, no, most of them are, are it's a, it, well, it's a combination of both, but I would say a lot of them are coming certainly from the Middle East, Syria still, Afghanistan, and of course the Ukraine. So we're seeing a lot of those clients. We're also seeing a lot of international students, and I think that speaks directly to what's going on in terms of, of the increased cost of food, uh, shelter, of course, and uh, and the gas prices. So I think these students are coming now. Uh, who normally it wouldn't be um, odd for us to have, um, but um, but they're they're finding that they certainly can't make ends meet. Uh, when you say you have incredible diversity of clientele, of course, um, uh, and one of the challenges, to my understanding, that you're you're going through, is looking for more culturally appropriate food. Yes, that's right. Um, I would say roughly seventy-five to eighty percent of our clients now are are Muslim. And, um, and, you know, our, our priority has always been that we want to serve our clients in the best that we can. And what that normally means is, of course, that, uh, that we, pre- we can provide the food that they're used to, that they feel welcomed. And when we have uh, certainly refugees that arrive three days after they've entered into Canada, uh, the culture shock alone is, is a lot. But what we would try and do is at least to provide the food that they're used to and that they're no and that can make them feel comfortable and at home. Mm-hmm. And, w- and when you say uh, 75 to 80% or uh, of Muslim background, so they, they need food that is specific to their culture and uh, respective of their heritage. That's right. So most of it uh, is halal. Uh, and so we have um, been trying to source out different halal types of food. 
We are this year actually uh, looking at, at bringing in some halal turkey so that at least they'll have something for the holidays that are specific to that. Uh, but halal is, is the, big, um, the big one that our clients are looking for. Have your numbers been always this high when it comes to the to the to the community, Muslim community as clients? Uh, I've never heard of that number where seventy five to eighty percent of your clients are of Muslim background. Uh, that's actually the first time I've actually heard it. Oh, is that right? You know, it's it's changed a lot. Uh, a majority of our clients are are refugees and new immigrants to Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, it's shifted in the last, I'd say, probably two years, but in particular this last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a big change. Um, and like I say, I mean, we have a lot of forty one percent of our clients are children under the age of eighteen. So. Um, that tells you the type of families. They're very large families that are coming, six to eight, sometimes ten in a family. And uh, so that's been a big shift for us as well. Wow. And uh, when, you, when you're sourcing halal food, are there specific fo- companies or businesses that you're relying on in Surrey, or, or do you still need more businesses that can pro- provide halal food uh, for the Surrey Food Bank to work with? Well, we certainly appreciate more options. Um, we currently uh, are respectful to one in particular at this point, but we would like to look at some other options as well. Um, and that's only for meats at this point. So we would like to bring in other types of halal products, and uh, that would have to go to the community and other folks that can help us with that. Mm-hmm. And if people want to donate money uh, this Christmas season uh, to the food bank, where can they go? Uh, they can certainly just call us here at our office or, or mail in uh, any sort of donation or go on our website. Uh, we're happy to accommodate uh, either way. And, uh, and that helps us, too, because we can bulk buy a product. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we can bring those in. We always purchase fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, but there's other products as well that we'd like to bring in that are culturally specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you amazed at how quickly... Uh, things have turned in regards to a change in clientele. Uh, and I guess part of this has been exacerbated, as you say, because of inflation and other economic issues. But it seems like a, a, a huge change just in clients' uh, needs. And then, of course, on top of that, layered with economic challenges that we have. Oh, absolutely. It's It's been a huge change for us. Um, and I think you know, in the past, it was very local, very community-oriented, uh, local folks within the Surrey, North Delta area. Uh, but with the increase in immigrants and new immigrants and refugees, that's this is the only place they can go, unfortunately. I mean, it is, as you say, with the inflation and the cost, and it is your neighbors also, your, ne- your, your co-workers, anybody within the community now, is finding it very difficult to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is tough times for for everyone, that's for sure. Nancy, thank you so much for your time. I know you have a busy day and a busy month ahead. I really appreciate you making time for us today. No, well, thank you, Jazz. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, all the best to you. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.